The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the Car Talk edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am joined by Anna Shemansky of Michigan. Yes. The woman who has who got her driver's license at the age of never. never. <laughs> um, and I'm also joined by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post, who Hello. got her driver's license at the age of... I think 40, but maybe it was 42. Unclear. Somewhere around Recently. There, which makes me the you know, early adopter when it came to driving because I was 33, I think, <laughs> when I got mine. Um, we obviously are, we were obviously jumping into cars at the first available opportunity. We are bad Gen Xers. What can I say? Really, really bad. We I'm were meant shocked. to be the last generation which cared about cars and none of us cared about cars. Yeah. We're very um, forward thinking. We're millennial-like Gen Xers. Yeah, we, we were ahead of the curve. Yes. I think I'm technically a millennial depending on some <laughs> uh, some measurements. I, I'm saying 1980 is the cutoff. Okay, then I am. There you go. All right. So um, Anna Shemansky is the millennial who never learned to drive. She's ruined everything. It's and true. She is going to explain to us why General Motors is... Um, having to fire 14,000 people because I guess millennials aren't driving. Um, We can go into a bit more detail about that. We are going to talk about the Fed because it was a big Fed week this week. We had a big speech from Jay Powell. We're going to talk a little bit about the Fed, whether it's going to stop raising rates and what on earth Mr. Trump is doing, talking about all of those, you know, rates all the time. Um, and we are going to have a little bit of fun talking about one of the more meaningless statistics in financial markets, which is which company has the largest market cap. And right now it is down to Microsoft and Apple um, are fighting it out in a really pointless battle. And because we love pointless battles here on Slate Money, we're going to talk about that. All of that coming up here on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, Anna, as the car expert, yes. you, can, you can explain to me why is no one buying cars anymore? Or specifically, why is no one buying American cars? We had an announcement earlier this year from Ford that they were basically going to stop making all of their cars and concentrate just on trucks and SUVs and crossovers and stuff like that. And now General Motors seems to be doing much the same thing. And they're both seeding the sedan market to the Japanese who seem to have uh, all of this tied up in a bow. Um, What's going on there? This past week, CEO Mary Barra of GM announced that the company would be restructuring. They're going to be eliminating a number of plants in um, the Midwest and in Canada. And 
the reason they're doing this is because they want to shift from cars to, as you said, crossovers SUVs, but also autonomous vehicles and electric cars. So the autonomous vehicles and electric cars thing really has less to do with the factory closings and more to do with this, like, where do we reinvest our profits? We They do still have positive cash flow. Um, and rather than trying to invest that money in making more cars or better cars, what, what they've decided is that um, the stock market gives car companies very low multiples because they think that millennials don't drive, which they're probably correct about. And so if they want to get their share price up, they need to do sexy things like autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles because they see that Tesla has a very high share price I, everyone. I think this is all Tesla envy. I think that this is really GM on fortunately making a difficult decision that is probably necessary because Americans aren't buying cars. They're buying they're buying vehicles, just to be clear. Like they're buying SUVs, they're buying crossovers, they're buying trucks, but they're not buying cars. Well they and- are they're not buying American cars. They're buying the Nissan Altima and the Honda Accord and the Toyota Camry. They're just not buying well, sedans. Cars Actually, that are, yeah. the statistic is two-thirds of all new um, vehicles that were sold last year were trucks and SUVs, two-thirds. So they really aren't buying we really aren't buying cars right. here in America. I mean, the parking lots where I live are filled with SUVs and crossovers and trucks, like no question. Right. So I, and I think what GM is doing is they're – meeting consumer demands. And also, GM is in a little bit of a different position than some of the other auto companies because they have basically they have too many plants. And and that's part of the reason that they're coming forward with these announcements of complete plant closures, whereas we know Ford's going to be laying off a lot of people. But A, they just haven't been as upfront about it. And B, it's a little different because they don't have so many plants that are just focused on cars. Well, I mean, the other thing to say is that although GM had a bunch of excess capacity, and a lot of what they're doing here is trying to get rid of excess capacity because I learned this from my amazing Axios colleague, Joanne Muller, who actually does know about cars. Um, the The way you make money in the auto industry is by running auto plants at 100% full capacity, three ships. Over 100%, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and like just churning out the maximum number of cars per plant. And only if you do that can you start really making money. And GM had a whole bunch of plants which were only running one shift and were like really nowhere near capacity. And the basic, you know, widely accepted estimate is there's roughly three and a half million cars per year of excess capacity in the US. That That's how many more cars America could produce than it does produce. And that's just bad for efficiency. So she's closing down all of those plants to try and reduce that excess capacity. Um, but GM only accounts for about one million of that three and a half million. So Ford is the obvious one, as Anna was saying, and they're going to probably close plants as well for exactly the same reason. Or they they probably won't be in closing, closing entire plants, but they will definitely be limiting staff. Um, and the one thing that struck me, it struck me as disingenuous that she said they they want to focus on electric cars um, because they're, they're stopping they are, the Chevy Volt. They're stopping the Chevy Volt, which... Uh, but that's their hybrid, right? It's a hybrid. Yeah, and that's it's the point. It's apparently a great well, car. It's, it's a plug-in hybrid. So. Right, but this is the point, yeah. is that they've been making these half measures. Like, GM has been making these half measures. Oh, we're kind of going to go. It's, it's a hybrid. We're, we're doing, we're kind of making changes. And what they needed to do was to do something more dramatic, to say, like, no, we are actually changing the face of our company. I, Why do maybe, they need to do that? I think, I mean, they make huge profits on the SUVs and trucks. The margins are like 30, 40%, right? So, and they lose money on the cars. And those are big 
gas-guzzling things that they're they're able to sell here in the United States because we keep the price of gas very low because we're destroying the climate at a rapid pace. And GM coming out and saying stuff about electric cars and autonomous it's vehicles strikes me as just totally and, disingenuous. And, and let's be clear about given this. Given where they're making their money. When gas prices were up at $4 a gallon, that was when Americans started buying cars again, and especially small cars and efficient cars and ones which had good mileage. And the Prius became really popular. Mm-hmm. And now Americans aren't doing that because gas prices are low again. So this idea that like it's clear what the trend is, which is that when Americans don't care about gas prices, they like big gas guzzlers. And when they do care about gas prices, that's when they start thinking about fuel efficiency. In the in a world where Americans don't care about gas prices and buy SUVs and trucks, that's not a world where electric cars are going to be particularly popular because the main thing that electric cars do is get great mileage and no one cares about mileage. Although maybe they're thinking, um, I, I was speaking to our climate reporter at HuffPost and he said maybe they're thinking about selling electric cars in China where apparently they're very well subsidized and a growing share of their auto market. But if well, you, I mean, the, if the you idea... make electric cars in China, you can sell them in China, but you're yeah. not going to make them in America. No, you're not going to make them in America. No, I mean, Why I think they? they understand that right now there is not the demand for this, these products. They, they know that and they're making the bet on like, well, look, we can keep throwing money money into products that is a dying part of our industry and where we're losing money or we'll put money into this other place where we're losing money but we can <laughs> but we can see that as an actual growth opportunity which is unfortunately what the company needs to do so what, explain to me so into electric cars are a growth opportunity because of china or why no because i think you have a lot of a lot of auto companies the same as like you hear a lot of energy executives talk about the fact that like they realize that despite our you know idiot administration People understand that climate change is a real thing. Throughout the United States, we're obviously seeing it significantly in Europe. We are going to have regulations. There is going to probably be, I mean, at some point, some type of more significant carbon tax. People see in the future we're not going to have the same type of energy usage as we have now. And they want to get out in front of that. Uh, Yeah, I think this is a timing thing. I think that... Uh, yeah, you're right. At some point in the long term, there will be more electric cars. And the question is, is that long term close enough to get a decent sort of ROI on investments that you make today? No, you're and not. You're question losing is, it. Does GM know what it's doing on that front? I mean, they had the vault. By all accounts, we have this great piece on HuffPost from um, one of our reporters who lives in Michigan who wrote about his Chevy Volt and how it's like a, a great car. It was a good car, but GM never understood its own product, never really marketed it, never really got behind it. Um, you know, these, these yeah, automakers, they, have an all-electric they one like gas. The Volt. They like big, cool gas cars, yeah, you know, exactly. that with lots of muscle. And like maybe even if they say they claim they're going to get into this new area and they see the future coming, I wonder if they can actually handle that future. I mean, I think it's going to be difficult for all of the large auto manufacturers because they did all come of an a- come of age where everything was about scale yeah. and bigness and, you know, com- all of these huge mergers. And now they're not just competing with the big three. They're now also competing with these more nimble companies. And mm-hmm. it looks like that is going to continue in the future as also you're going to have more competition from markets outside the U.S. So car companies are thinking, and this isn't just GM. This is what's happening everywhere. It's just GM was far more vocal about it. Mm. Uh, Okay, well, let's, since we're talking about scale and bigness, um, the other big car-related news of late was the jailing of Carlos Gosen, who was the 
let me get this right, the chairman of Nissan, the chairman of Mitsubishi, and the CEO of Renault, mm-hmm. um, and he was trying to merge all three of them into this massive global car maker because he was convinced that you need that kind of scale. Fiat Chrysler is another relatively recent um, car merger, which was predicated on this idea of you need to merge and get scale. I kind of buy this story. If you look at the problems that Tesla has been through, I don't buy this idea that it's like fast and nimble. I think that it is actually hobbled by a lack of institutional knowledge of how to actually manufacture cars at scale. And, you know, Gozen obviously just overreached massively and everyone hated him. And so he there was like this whistleblower in Japan who's like, hey, this guy hasn't paid his, reported his income and now he's in jail. And that didn't work out very no. well. I mean, he was, people are saying, well, he's kind of like the last of the big personality yeah, auto Sergio Marchion died. Yeah, Sergio Marchion died and like all the other ones are gone. Yeah. yeah I mean, Iacocca comes to mind, but I know that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, and now we have someone by comparison, Mary Barra, who's just, it's interesting to see that even as GM is demonized for those layoffs and plant closures, like Mary Barra really isn't demonized. I've been looking at her, the coverage of like her as a CEO versus say like Sheryl Sandberg lately and and just thinking it's interesting like how her personality, Mary Barra, sort of recedes into the background um, and, and as the auto industry seems to kind of also get smaller. Yeah, I, I don't, think, I I don't think Mary Barra has ever like expressed an interesting opinion in her life. No, she just... I'm pretty sure that's not entirely well, I accurate. Mean, she has some anecdotes that she tells over and over again. Like I've heard her speak and she tells like the same story of um, GM used to have like a very button down kind of a dress code. And I guess when Barra came in, she was like, you know what? I'm changing our dress code now. Just dress the way it makes sense. Like as a dress appropriately was the new code. And I heard her tell that anecdote in like 2015. And then recently I saw a piece in Quartz telling the anecdote again. Like she's just not a very... Well, that's also how CEOs are coached to give yeah, interviews. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's not how the she's car companies really, used yeah. to have these big personalities. Oh, yeah, no, and I definitely CEOs, agree with and that. She's yeah. sort of like an example of what car companies are now, which is nimble, I guess. If or trying I, I to don't think there smaller. is such a thing as a nimble car company. Although, <laughs> although, well, like, to be fair, this was the whole idea behind the Fiat Chrysler merger and stuff like that. Is and and increasingly, you have these car companies which have global. They, this is the one time when I feel like you can actually use the word platform and not be a complete douchebag about it. <laughs> that you you basically have, you know, and I'm going to be really technical here, like the engine bits and the wheel bits and the, you know, oh boy. You, you put all the cars together like a Lego set, <laughs> but you can mix and match. And so, you know, the Jeep Renegade is basically the same as the Fiat 500 with a different shape, you know, or, you know, and then, and that kind of thing. And that makes you more nimble right yeah like in, you in sell at the dealership you can sell a bunch of different kinds of cars you exactly mean, or at the plant, and if people want a like a big boxy tr- car you sell them <laughs> jeep renegade and if they want a small cute car you sell them the fiat 500 and if tastes change you can just change the body shape from one to the other and keep on selling and that actually that kind of nimbleness comes from scale it doesn't come from being small right except that if you're shifting towards like electric vehicles i mean they involve so many fewer parts Compared to like the internal combustion engine, which is part of the reason that they would involve probably fewer workers. But it's also just, I mean, in some sense, the assembly is much more complicated in terms of, you could argue, like the technology behind it. Yeah, but in but terms of the actual parts. Make, it's, no, well, I mean, it depends whether you include all of the work that goes into making the batteries, because making batteries is. Right, but the actual assembly of the work. car was going to be much 
it's it's going to be much more streamlined. Well, that was that was what Elon Musk kept on saying, and then he ran into all of these reductions. Because he's an idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, should we say why this guy's in jail? Because he think? didn't report $44 million of income in Japan. He just kept it, his, kept it to himself. He was like, we'll get to this yeah. eventually. And then also there were and all these houses. stories about how houses, like, yeah. he used a subsidiary in the Netherlands to build himself a house in Lebanon, even though like his company doesn't even have any operations in Lebanon. Yes, yeah. correct. And he yeah. was only there a few days a year. Yeah. yeah. He also had a Marie Antoinette-themed party. Yes, I so saw that. His just, second just wedding, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah... Don't do that. But also, can we have some, like, th- I, I feel so depressed that the only real visionary in the entire car industry is fucking Elon Musk, you know? We, we've got to be able to do better I don't know if he's a visionary. He's just good at marketing himself. Right. Yeah, I don't know if that's entirely true. Well, he is a visionary. He wants to go to Mars and stuff. <laughs> Exactly. Like, Mary, is that Barrett, real? I mean, Mary Barrett is never going to come out and Little boys in their bedrooms want to go to Mars. There is it's a not. 70% chance that I'm going to go to Mars. I mean, Elon Musk is not going to go to Mars, but he is going to say that there's a 70% chance that he's going to Mars. It makes him a big personality in the car industry. Mary Barrow would never say that. Yes, it makes him a big personality, but I would argue not a visionary, as I just mumbled. Like a lot of a lot of boys dream of going to Mars. He just happens to be rich, so but he can every, say it to Kara Swisher. Every car visionary car CEO is basically a boy with toys trying to like say <laughs> what would true. be cool. That's what makes you a visionary in the car. Industry. I don't know if that makes you a visionary. <laughs> no. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay. Talking about visionaries. And idiots. Um, and idiots. <laughs> we, have, we have the classic fight of visionary versus idiot here. Um, we have the man with the crystal ball, Mr. Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, took out his uh, crystal ball and sets interest rates in order to make sure that the, you know, that the U.S. economy can keep on growing and not shrink and keep on creating jobs and all of these other wonderful things and he uses the combined power of all of the fed's forecasters to do this and he reckons that yeah we're still not quite at neutral rates yet but the economy is ticking along quite well and basically he seems to be doing an okay job except there's this weird orange cheeto thing in like coming in from stage left and making the whole thing much more complicated. What is going on, Emily? Well, uh, Jay Powell at the Fed is trying his best to just go about his business. And the President Trump just keeps trash talking him, basically saying he's not happy with him, saying he should stop raising rates, saying something. um, I'm not being accommodated by the Fed because I know in my gut that's what the president just wants to rule with his gut. He knows that he should not be raising rates anymore and breaking a long tradition of presidents not messing around with the Fed. It's not just to be clear, that long. Yeah, just to be clear, <laughs> like... long-ish. Long-ish. No, it's... I mean, this is actually like... Okay, look, Here we, we all hate Donald Trump. We all think Donald Trump's an idiot. Donald Trump breaks norms all the time. This is not norm-breaking. If you look at when the Fed, like, kind of became independent in, like, 1951, since then, pretty much almost immediately, 
every president tried to affect Fed policy. You know, whether you're talking about the most famous example that everybody says of Nixon and Arthur Burns, or whether you're talking about like Lyndon Johnson, like literally shoved Anna. William McChesney Martin against a wall and screamed at him. And so, that was a long time ago, though. I mean, the last. So did president... George H. W. Bush. He said it. George while he was... H. W. Bush did not shove anyone against. He did the not wall. shove any. He, yes, he did not um, lay his hands on. No, but he, while he was president and after he was president, talked quite a bit about his dis like did, that he did not agree with Fed policy. So. I think that this is one instance where I think we are blowing Trump's actions a little out of proportion. Well, no, we are I don't not. Okay, so. so there's, but every other president, not every, okay, in general, when presidents have been unhappy about Fed policy, they have, you know, tried to buttonhole the Fed chair and say, Oi, you, stop making me look bad, stop raising rates. As far as anyone can tell, Trump hasn't done that. He hasn't talked to, Powell at all. He just gives interviews to the Wall Street Journal where he talks about how unhappy he is with, with Powell. Like, there's a difference, I think there's an important difference, between saying something directly to the Fed chair and trying to influence Fed policy that way, which I think is actually not what Trump is doing but, and what was done in the past, versus what Trump is doing, which is coming out in public and trying to make his supporters not trust the Fed and turn the Fed into an enemy of the people and basically reduce the public trust in the central bank, which I think has not been done by previous presidents. Well, although you had, I guess it just depends. I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, I'll give you a little bit of that. But you're you're talking about Nixon trying to like actually looking into actually diluting the power of the Fed, actually affecting Fed. I mean, he actually affected Fed policy. So yes, we can make the argument that Trump is doing more of this in public, but he's being less effective than previous. So if you if, if the point is that we want an independent Fed, I would almost rather have some just idiot saying things than people who are actually using like their power or like Nixon planting false stories in the news. But Fed independence is a means to an end. Fed, Fed, there's a reason why we want an independent Fed. And it's not just because independence in and of itself is a wonderful thing. The reason why we want an independent Fed is because that's the best way to make sure that the public trusts the Fed to do the right thing. And what Trump is doing is he's doing an end run around that and he's trying to create mistrust of the Fed even with independence. The reason we want an independent Fed is so that investors know that there is a check on government policy. There's a check on fiscal policy. You can't just have the monetary policy being used as a political tool. That I, is I, extremely I, important. I, I, well, I disagree with that. I think the reason for an independent Fed has nothing to do with investors. It has nothing to do with markets. It has everything to do with just keeping the broader economy um, on an optimal footing as best we can without political interference. And, you know, I, you know, logically that's probably good for markets, but that's a consequence. That's not a cause. I think we see this all the time in, in a lot of the countries we wind up talking about the, how crucial it is to keep monetary policy away from politics and how, when it gets tied up together, disaster occurs. Um, I mean, like, and, and to talk about Nixon, and say, well, this this has precedent. I feel like that was quite a long time ago. And <laughs> I mean, there was a piece uh, in the journal from Nick Timoreos, and I think he said the last time uh, president tried to get involved with the Fed was maybe Clinton in 92, and he was talked out of it. And, and since then, there really hasn't been, um, it, it really has been more 
independent. I think also it seems like Trump is he's not just like trying to publicly put pressure on J-PAL to keep rates low. He seems to be setting him up to be kind of like a scapegoat for when the economy goes south. Right. Although I would also it's it's a bit high. I don't want anyone want to sound like I'm defending Donald Trump. Like, yes, he's an idiot. Everything he says is stupid. But <laughs> I, I, I just feel like we're being a little naive about how presidents have affected. Well, no, but, yeah, but, but, but to, no, to, to, to Emily's point, let's think about this in terms of chronology, right? That Nixon was just a few years away from when the central bank had no independence at all. Like there wasn't this norm, this global norm of central bank independence. It had been, you know, maybe 10, 15 years, something like that. Closer um, in time than we are to Nixon. Right. But yeah, I, and closer in time than we are to Clinton, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and so the you know, he was still trying to push things around and see, you know, see how much um influence he could have. And as the years and the decades have gone on since then, and as central banks around the world have gained independence and as you've had like the ECB and and other central banks really become part of the global monetary architecture the idea of questioning central in, central bank independence and trying to influence the central bank has become much more of a, a much stronger norm so what trump is doing here is he's violating a norm which is much stronger now than it was back in nixon's day back in nixon's day yes i'll agree with some of that although i would also argue that like alan greenspan has come out and say like he was con- like presidents every president constantly tried to influence him so i I guess that's where I'd say, like, yes, I do think the public nature of it is different. I mean, I'll give you that. But I think the actual actions just aren't that different. No. And and I think, you know, as I I say, I think I can kind of agree with you on the influence. I don't think he is going to influence Powell. I don't think he is going to influence the Fed. Um, If anything, he's going to, at the margin, force Powell to keep on raising rates, even if he doesn't really want to, just to prove that he's independent. But I actually, I heard um, they're pro- he's probably going to raise rates again the next in December, and yeah. then after that, it's a, it's question, a question mark. mark. Yeah. So I was, I was wondering. I know there's zero evidence that Powell has been influenced. I mean, as as though there could be like some smoking gun evidence of that, but um, it is kind of curious. So no, the, I mean so that, the, that, that, yeah. that's going to have to do with like shifts in data, and, and also a lot of this has to do with the fact that Powell messed up, and he said in a in a previous. Um, in a previous statement that we were far from neutral right. and that spooked the market. So the, mm-hmm. a lot of this is just face saving. Like I pretty much I don't think anybody really thinks unless the economy really turns mm-hmm. that the Fed's going to change their trajectory. So so here's the, the question, right, is right now we're getting, according to Powell in his latest speech, very close to neutral. There'll be another rate hike this year. Mm-hmm. And then, as you say, we no, don't really know what's going to happen in 2019. Um, but let's say for the sake of argument, more or less, that we go into 2019 with neutral or close to neutral monetary policy. Um, at that point, the Fed basically has two choices in terms of future actions. If it thinks the economy is overheating and you know inflation is growing too fast and you know the economy is like too hot, then it can raise rates to try and put the brakes on. If it is worried about recessions and the economy slowing down, then it can cut rates to try and keep the expansion going. Um, My personal feeling is that the risk of 
a recession is probably higher than the risk of the economy overheating. So in that sense, maybe the this this rate hike cycle might be coming to an end. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I think that we are in a little bit of uncharted territories because a lot of people talk about like R star, the kind of neutral rate, and you know you have people like who are saying it may be lower than it was in the past because of globalization and the internet and many, many other things of why it in just aging population, why it could be that rates will not have to be go quite as high in order to be neutral. Right, but, 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 but put to, put to one a... side the question of where the neutral rate is. Let's just say, assuming that we're at or near the neutral rate right now, the question then becomes, what happens after right. it's neutral? Do, you, do, do rates go up or do they go down? I mean, I, my guess is they would probably just remain stable for a little while unless unless things markedly change. And that's also another reason why you don't want rates to be at zero. So then if there was a recession, you, your kind of toolbox is a little limited. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people probably do think that it has been so long since we've had like a big inflation issue that I think a lot of people kind of forget. And we have had a relatively tepid economic recovery. So I think it does seem like the likelihood of the Fed overreacting is probably higher. And granted, if you actually- Wait, wait, wait. When you say overreacting, you mean raising rates? Raising rates maybe too quickly. And I I mean, I do think it's interesting if you just look at like the history of the Fed's actions, especially like the kind of modern Fed, like post-1950, that they always make a mistake. Like no matter what the Fed does, they will do something wrong. They're you know far better than any alternative we have, but the I'm sure they'll, the, they'll either... in general the the Fed's mistakes have been that they cut rates they were too accommodative like this is the big Greenspan era is 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 that right. he you know cut rates too far too quickly for no especially like in the early 2000s for mm-hmm. no good reason mm-hmm. um, just because he wanted to keep the stock market up or something no one really understood why he was so aggressive about cutting cutting rates in the early 2000s and that caused the the credit bubble which caused the financial crisis and in terms of raising rates you know the the big one that everyone remembers is Paul Volcker mm-hmm. like raising rates to 20% or whatever the hell, hell he he raised them to and everyone gives him a huge amount of credit for that. Well, no it, one said that was an error. Right. I mean, no, because that was no, no one says that was an error. But if you, it, it, having said that, what often ha- happens is that the Fed tends to overreact to whatever happened previously, and so the like it's never perfect. And I'm not saying that they're going to cause a massive recession. I'm just saying that, like, yeah, are they going to be perfect? Probably not. But I do think that it seems like you know Powell is is pretty reasonable, and I do I don't think he's overly hawkish. I don't think he's overly dovish. I think that they're pretty much just. Of course, I the think classic Janet Yellen would have been better, but well, I mean, apparently no, she I mean, was too short is, to continue. This is, yeah, this is the ridiculous thing: is that with Trump complaining that Powell isn't dovish enough, like if he wanted a dove at the Fed, he right. could have just kept Yellen, right? But he got rid of her. I mean, purely because she didn't look the part. I, I really think, and also, I guess he wanted a change from right. whoever Obama picked. But the Washington Post did have this like delicious detail um, this week that. He was thinking about keeping Yellen, but he went around and saying to people, she's 5'2". What kind of Fed chair could be 5'2"? She's too short to, to, do, the, to do the role. Um, that, yep. well, welcome I, to Trump land. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this ridiculous metric. Um, Emily, as, a, as the sort of like, you know, sensible person around this table. The one who didn't prepare for this conversation because <laughs> I didn't realize we were having it. Um, I'm ready. No, but... But this is exactly why you're perfectly placed to answer this question. Why do any normal people care about market capitalization? Like, why is this a metric that, you know, 
the press and even the Huffington Post will write about on a regular basis. What is it about market cap that captures the imagination of people? It's like the only financial jargony metric term thing that people seem to care about a lot of the time. Okay, well, setting aside that you've just set me up as like the village idiot over here, (laughs) I'm going to explain that people like to, they like recognizable brands. So we would only cover like market cap gets really big if it's a company you've heard of. Everyone's heard of Apple. Everyone has Apple products in their pocket or their purse. So they care about Apple and how much it's worth and all that kind of stuff. It's like a person. Brands are like people to people. Um, and market cap is kind of like an easy thing to wrap your head around. This company is worth this amount of money. And this company that you maybe hate is worth this amount of money. It's like a race or like a football score or something. And in general, higher is better. I mean, isn't that how money works, you guys? I don't know. You tell me. Like, yeah, higher is better. And right. it's higher better. Is, is, is market cap something which, which like, higher is better? Because I really don't think it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, I think oh, it depends on what you mean by that. Like, who are you for the company, for the investor? For like, yeah, I mean, so for investors, it's clearly not. I mean, what we what we have right now, the the news hook here is that Microsoft may or may not at some point around now be overtaking Apple in market cap and become the most valuable company Wait, in the I world. I will add that this is interesting because Microsoft was supposed to be kind of like a dead tech firm and Apple was supposed to be the cool tech firm. So it almost has like the the whiff of like an underdog or a comeback story. And there is people a comeback. Yeah. Love Mi- a comeback Microsoft story. hasn't had a higher market cap than Apple since basically the iPhone took off. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the... Way and but and also another company which is rising up the market cap league tables is good old fashioned Cisco, you know, which like remember them from mm-hmm. 30 well, years and ago. Plus, people hate the sorry, one more thing. People are in this place right now where we hate all these newfangled tech and we hate we hate Facebook now, we hate Twitter now, right? We for some reason probably hate Apple too. They're all bunched together, so it's kind of fun since everyone's hating on those companies to go back and be like, remember the good old days when these other tech companies were running stuff. But I think that this so, is actually important because I think part of the reason that Microsoft is doing as well as it is is part is because they have focused on enterprise solutions. Like they're focusing on the kind of boring business side. Okay, with- but uh, this is this is Slate Money. We don't use the phrase enterprise solutions on, <laughs> on Slate Money. I'm sorry. That's just not something we do. But no, okay, first of all, I'm not going to let you get away with with that. What Harsh. is an enterprise solution? They're focusing on cloud computing, on oh, servers. Dear. Yeah, you see, on, that, it's all jargon. Well, I don't understand any of it. Everyone this. knows about the cloud. It's the cloud. Yeah, it's yes, exactly. There. So that companies don't have to have their own servers. They're on parts. Microsoft 365 being like <laughs> through the internet. I mean, this is where Microsoft is. Cloud computing is pretty much what they have okay. staked everything on that and AI. Okay. So the. What about the blockchain? <laughs> they're not doing blockchain. <laughs> but the. Um, the the way you get big, the way you increase your market cap, if you're Cisco or if you're Microsoft or virtually any of these big companies, um, but not interestingly Apple, is you grow via acquisition. You know, you're Microsoft, so you buy GitHub, you buy LinkedIn, you buy Skype, you buy Minecraft, you know, any, any, any by Nokia, you know, anything. There's anytime there's some like interesting bit business you want to get into. Nokia you just wasn't buy that. the smartest purchase, um, but in any case. Growing via acquisition, it will increase your market cap. It does nothing for your share price, right? If what you care about is your shareholders and trying to create shareholder value or whatever, market cap is is kind of not important. Um, And so that's one of the interesting 
differences, I think, between Microsoft and Apple is that Apple never really cared that much about market cap. It, you know, did care about the share price and it tried to become very profitable and did and made lots of money and the share price went up and became valuable. Never traded at enormous multiples, but was valuable all the same. Um, Whereas these other companies which have been floating, you know, sticking around for a long time, like Microsoft and Cisco and Intel, which is still huge today, are largely huge by because they grew via acquisition, which didn't, you know, it's it's kind of a cheat. In well, a way. but Microsoft's like stock price has done quite well. <laughs> so yeah, so, that, mean, that's, that's, the, that's the other thing. Microsoft is trading on a much higher multiple than Apple is. That Microsoft is not nearly as profitable as Apple. It has lower revenues, lower profits, but it's worth as much because it's managed to get this recurring revenue from large corporations with this cloud services and whatnot. So every month it gets massive checks from S&P 500 companies or Fortune 500 companies. And that um, that kind of certain revenue with super high margins is exactly what the stock market loves. And that's why you know Salesforce is worth so much money. That's why Oracle is worth so much money. And that's why Apple has never been worth that much money because it doesn't have that kind of predictable recurring revenue from corporations. It's just trying to sell gadgets to individuals. Well, I think Apple, in a way, is a riskier business. It depends. I mean, if the if people start buying iPhones, what is Apple left with? The iTunes store? Well, no, I mean, I just don't. Right. What else does it have? I, I actually kind of think it's a fun story if, if the companies are personalities to watch because, yeah, I've, uh, Apple, I don't know. They no, this can't is actually last forever. This is actually important. That, I mean, Apple gets like sixty percent of its revenue from the iPhone, and they've announced that they're no longer going to be releasing the. Um, they're no longer going to be releasing the count of individual units sold each quarter. Clearly, because they're not going to be selling as yeah. many. So, and and they're not doing as well overseas. And this is a big deal because they're talking about shifting more and more into services. That that is what everyone's now saying about Apple. But. You know, one really wonders, like, are they really going to have a competitive advantage in, like, the what iTunes? services? Like, Apple Pay, iTunes, no. the App Store. No. Like, I mean, no. th- these are where... And we should and no. we should say no, 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 that no. there is a big antitrust lawsuit happening against Apple right now, which we're going to cover when we get a verdict, which is basically saying, you know, insofar as it's making a bet on taking its 30% cut of everything in the iTunes store... That could be illegal. And it only works again if they keep selling those iPhones because if everyone switches well, to... Well, no, that's that's not true. I mean, if so long as people keep their iPhones, they, they will keep on buying things on the iTunes store. They, 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 in order for that revenue to go away, they'd not only need to not buy new iPhones, they'd need to actually buy a new phone that wasn't an iPhone. Yeah. And I think that most people with iPhones generally stick with iPhones. Yes, but um, I don't think that lasts forever. We've never seen any product lasts forever in that way, right? Although I think products. given what's ha- <laughs> given that there are only two mobile operating systems, which are iOS and Android, mm-hmm. um, and given that Android is part of this sort of privacy problematic skeevy Google-verse where they mine a whole bunch of data. And like Tim Cook has been very clear that they have left a lot of money on the table by not 
invading your privacy and not selling your data and that kind of thing. I think over the long term, that's good for iOS. And that's a good reason for people to stick with iOS. I yeah, guess and my, my thinking is maybe not as logical, but I'm like Anna, Anna mentioned um, Nokia earlier. And, you know, everyone used to have a Nokia. Everyone used to have a Motorola Razor. No one saw the iPhone really even coming. So right. one day there's going to be a new thing that comes yeah. that no one saw coming that is going to that day might be in 20 years but I, I think don't know. I think that was the that was the genius of the iPhone is that like back when Nokia was the huge brand in phones it was the manufacturer of physical handsets and yeah. you bought the Nokia flip phones because they were cool, cool or yeah. the Motorola flip phone because it was cool and it, now and for the foreseeable future every phone is exactly the same black rectangle no one is buying it because this black rectangle is cooler than that black rectangle it's all about the operating system that's the only thing that matters tell that to microsoft which everyone said would always be powerful because it didn't matter what computer you bought you would always buy microsoft software but that too came to an end with the introduction of the iphone and everyone moving to yes the cloud so like tech changes no one ever sees it coming right. and I think products you're right. lose their monopoly. And I also think we should look outside of just the U.S. market because Huawei and a lot of Chinese competitors are doing quite well. Like people outside of the U.S. do not necessarily want to spend the money on an iPhone when they can get a less expensive phone with a lot of great features. Sure. But Huawei is, you know, is Android, basically. You know, it's ultimately going to come down to iOS versus Android. And Android has always had much, much higher market share than iOS and always will. I don't think that's going to change. The question is, can Apple continue to sell iPhones at $1,000 a pop and, you know, and keep its profits up that way? And it's, you know, it's a good question because, like, do we really need, like, isn't technology meant to be something which comes down in price? The iPhone is the only piece of technology that I can remember that has actually got more expensive over time. Because that's the only way they can keep making the same amount of money on it if they're selling fewer iPhones. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Emily, what's your number? My number is $20,000. $20,000. Dun, dun, dun. What's that? That that is sort of like the most a Santa Claus can make in a year. (laughs) (laughs) There was this great piece on Vox.com everyone should go read um, all about what it takes to be a high-end Santa. A Um, high-end Santa? Yeah, you have to have a real beard and it costs like several hundred dollars to get it dyed white during the season, a few thousand for the whole costume and everything. It's a very, it can be a very serious business and jolly. And then you make $20,000 in, what, the space of a couple weeks? Um, I guess it's a few months. I mean, the one Santa they interviewed, he works as a Santa all year round. It's corporate parties and everything. 
It's a lot and, of. He's <laughs> iconic. And twenty thousand dollars is how much he makes all year. Yeah, that was sort of the they said their estimate. Vox's estimate was like ten to twenty is how much you could make per what per year. But most of it's in the season. Right. So he Santa has, needs he, a second. Job. So he's not like a full time <laughs> yeah, Santa. It's not if you're thinking of like I'll just quit and become a Santa. Probably don't do that. It, you're not. That's not enough money. But is it a good excuse <laughs> to like eat a lot and grow a belly? Yes, and like grow a cool beard and stuff. Yeah. I guess a lot of the problems some of the Santas can't grow. Like they have, it comes in patchy, mm. so that's an issue. And then there's debate over what kind of fake beard to get. Human hair is obviously the top, and then there was other ones listed. Mm. Um, talking about bizarre facial hair, um, my number is. <laughs> $100,000, which is the fine that DJ Khaled is having to pay to the SEC for <laughs> pumping crypto scams on his social feeds. He's also having to give back another $50,000, which is how much he got paid for pumping crypto scams on his social feeds. And um, Floyd May- Mayweather is having to pay a $300,000 fine and pay back $300,000. So, you know... They're finally cracking down on crypto scammers like DJ Khaled. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just read Equifax didn't have to pay any fines for that big um, hacking thing that happened. Do you think that Marriott is going to have to pay fines for, for, no. for releasing 500 million pieces of data about like every single person who's ever stayed in the Starwood Hotel? Probs not. But, Probs it, not. but we got DJ Khaled. So. <laughs> All is right in the world. Um, my number is 7.83%. That's the coupon on the Unicredit bond. Oh, my God. I'm so glad that we've got a bond coupon. <laughs> yes. So Unicredit's an Italian bank. Um, sold this bond this week to a single buyer, which pretty much everybody knows is PIMCO. And this is significant because in January, when they issued a very similar type of debt instrument, the coupon was 1%. So this just shows you kind of going off of actually what we talked about last week, like how bad things are getting in Italy and how the debt markets are really, really suggesting that there is a lot of problem in the financial system of both the sovereign, the banking system, corporates and individuals. And uh, you know there's a problem in the in the bond system when you start seeing a coupon which has like two decimal places on it like no coupons well, no, are always no, 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 round no. numbers no 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 no. You, well it depends i mean like eight three but like you have like you know, three quarters an eighth there's lots of like yeah sometimes you know, sometimes it's like a half or an eighth often it's just a round number but 7.83 percent yeah. yeah yeah like what what you would normally do would be like put it at seven and a half percent so the discount but no 7.83 percent coupon you know there's something wrong <laughs> Um, okay, I think that's it for us this week, except for you lovely, lovely Slate Plus listeners. Um, if you're a lovely Slate Plus listener, we will talk about what happens to pay gap data when you include the fact that a lot of women just often spend years not working at all. Um, or working part-time. Or working part-time. That's in Slate Plus, but otherwise, many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing the show this week. Keep on emailing us on slatemoney at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.